Entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Here's Marty Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builders Show, which is a production of Business Builders Media. You can get all our shows and podcasts from other great podcasters at businessbuildersmedia.com, where we give entrepreneurs and business leaders the tools they need to have their voices heard. That's businessbuildersmedia.com. My guest with me today on the Business Builders Show is Chris Lewis. Hi, Chris. How are you, sir? Hi, Marty. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Um, I, I, we are going to be talking about Chris's book, who he is a co-author of, and the title of the book is The Infinite Leader, Balancing the Demands of Modern Business Leadership. I said Chris is a co-author. Allow me, folks, to introduce both Chris and his co-author and say her name for me, Chris, so I say it or get it out correctly. It's Dr. Pippa Malmgren. Okay, excellent. So here's the introduction. Chris Lewis is an entrepreneur and author of the best-selling book on ideas and creativity. Title is Too Fast to Think. He's a former journalist and founder of one of the largest creative agencies in the world. And the title of that agency is Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Founded in 1995, his practice now encompasses more than 25 offices and 500 staff. You may have picked up on something that he is British, but splits his time between Britain and America. Dr. Pippa Malgren is an economist and an entrepreneur. A former White House presidential advisor, she now advises the British government and and, and the world's largest financial and military organizations. She is the author of the best-selling economics book, Signals. She correctly forecasted the great financial crisis, the slowdown in China, Brexit, and the rise of American nationalism. She is American, but splits her time between America and Britain. Now, why did I spend so much time on those introductions? Because I am positive it, it lends credibility to this great book. Again, Chris, uh, thanks for taking time to be with us. I'm going to say the title of the book again, The Infinite Leader, Balancing the Demands of Modern Business Leadership. So let's start here, Chris. Um, your book and your new leadership approach appears to be driven by some, uh, I would call, spectacular failures in leadership that have produced things like the financial crisis some scandals, and other ethical lapses that have damaged the economy. So am I correct in that assumption? And uh, tell me more. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that assumption. The, the issue that we need to address is the future of leadership. And that needs to be addressed by those people who are on the stage and who are actually leading companies and participating. Because If you look at this from the point of view of the generations that follow us coming into the workplace, 
they're seeing successive generation, uh, generation upon generation of uh, of less wealth than their parents had. They're seeing a world in crisis as far as they're concerned. They've seen things which their parents would have thought were unimaginable, a complete collapse in the global financial system, a global pandemic which kills hundreds of thousands. They're seeing uh, the rise of great division in terms of how our political system is supposed to work. And they see lots of individual cases. They see uh, charities like Oxfam, a British charity, exchanging aid for sex. They're seeing scandals in the Catholic Church undermining credibility. They're seeing uh, situations where the man who wrote the rules for NASDAQ um, were also created the world's largest Ponzi scheme. They're seeing leaders of automotive corporations lying about their emissions. How many of these scandals do we want to see before we recognize that leadership needs to reform itself? And on top of that, if they're in a capitalist system, capitalism needs to reform itself as well. Does that make sense? Makes plenty of sense to me. Um, it's obvious uh, when we think about it or when we talk about it. And again, you you launched the book that way. Uh, what a way to set the stage for a new approach to leadership. But here's here's my next question. Why, why has uh, leadership become so important recently? I mean, there's always been scandals. There's always been ethical lapses, Chris. So why is this uh, so important right now? Well, it's because of this generational change that we're seeing with each generation getting less and less interested in the, in the market economy. And I happen to believe that the market economy is a really efficient way of ending poverty and also creating opportunities and allowing people to bring forward really good ideas. And we don't want the next generation or this generation to lose faith in it. And, mm. and we have to recognize that the way our leaders have been trained is creating this huge imbalance. And um, this is about how we educate people. And there's a, there's a graphic I think I shared with you over the weekend yep. prior to yep. this call, which talks about how we give scores uh, in schools and in universities for mm-hmm. individual achievement. For um, uh, for for people who can uh, uh, can get to the right answer, and there is only one right answer, and it's usually at the back of the the book. We give scores <laughs> for people passing exams. Uh, we give scores for obedience, um, but we don't give anything to anybody in schools for nonconformity or for endurance or imagination or um, a sense of humour or uh, even a sense of humility, mm-hmm. and. And that's, these are all qualities that you need in leadership uh, positions if we're going to preserve the reputation of leadership in a market economy uh, because we've got to recognize that if we, if we care about the system of, of democracy and we care about capitalism, then people have got to have a stake in it. And at the moment, there's a whole generation, subsequent generations are having less and less interest in it because it needs to be so divided. So our educational system, I'm like our, probably our entire educational system, I assume we're referring primarily to higher education. Um, so I guess what you're telling me is that there's a lot of education on the numbers and spreadsheets and rational thinking and that kind of stuff, as opposed to what we would commonly call uh, emotional intelligence. Is that okay to say it that way? 
Yeah, I think that the one way you can do this is to ask your listeners and say, look, where are you and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Hmm. You know, are you, and I've asked, we've asked that question of, of hundreds of people and, and, and the response has been remarkably similar. They, they usually say, I'm not at work. Uh, I'm quite frequently on my own. And even more strangely, I'm not trying. And the idea comes to them. And hmm. these ideas, these epiphanies are really important for solving problems and also working out how we can, that we can achieve things collectively. Mm-hmm. And yet we provide virtually no training on that at all. What we do is reward people who are certain about things, that know the hmm. right answer. And hmm. my assertion, which will be controversial, is that the only provenance of certainty is now mediocrity. Hmm. Say that again. That the, 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 the only people who can be truly certain anymore are people who are very mediocre. Because leadership's job isn't to predict one outcome, it's to prepare for all of the outcomes. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm going to go back to ethical lapses, <laughs> so stay with me. Uh, on page 12, you say this. In 2018, more CEOs were forced out of office for an ethical lapse than for any other reason. So that, I guess that back begs the question, maybe you can tell us um, or give us your definition of what an ethical leader might look like, or maybe some traits that an ethical leader might have. Well, there, there are some great leaders out there. Um, uh, and this is a report that I think was done by the uh, management consultancy, um, PwC, um, and it was based on their data. But the evidence of that is around us. When we're talking about ethical uh, balance, we're really uh, we're really talking about the, the balance between the short term and the long term, between the tactical and the strategic between the individual and the group. And one of the things that we're advocating in the book is that this situational fluency can only be gained by assessing the situation upon a series of continuum. So, uh, and we and we tr- and we chose Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man as a model for it. Mm-hmm. We initially called them the Vitruvian models because they um, they, they express this need for for balance in the business community between quantitative and qualitative and mm. and and when we started putting these different axes together we could clearly see that many of the cases that we were talking about of this ethical lapse were really based upon short-term tactical quantitative individual decisions which mm. really were based upon the long-term qualitative team and mm. um, and and this is something that we get from the education right from the get-go that everything we do is ranked by individual performance it's not about the team and mm. this also has profound implications when we look at gender in leadership because all of the research that we've seen particularly the work of um, of thomas premuzik in at UC, ucl that's done a lot of research on the gender issue uh, points out the fact that women in teams tend to achieve collectively but underachieve individually and men are the other way around. They achieve individually, but not collectively. And mm. uh, if anybody's interested in his work, I really highly recommend it. He's, he's, he's written a book called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? <laughs> why do so many men become incompetent leaders? It's what, yeah, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? Yeah. Uh, incompetent men become leaders. Wow, that's a powerful uh, title of a book. Maybe we should, or I'm asking you, 
um, the title of your book is The Infinite Leader. What yeah. do you mean by infinite? What, what, explain that to me. Well, because most leadership is really based around goals. I mean, everybody on this call has probably got a to-do list. Um, and that list gets longer and longer. I know that the one that my partner gives me gets longer and longer every day. But the, <laughs> the, everybody has a to-do list. And one of the things that's most important here is that leaders also have a to-be list. The leaders are there to express the values and embody the values of the people that they represent. And, and you can try this as a simple test. Ask somebody to describe their parents. And uh, they'll say, oh, well, my mother was uh, inspirational. My father was uh, uh, restless. My mother was uh, uh, very kind. These are all adjectives that can only go with the verb to be. You can't do any of those things. Mm -hmm. if, you ask, if you ask parents to describe themselves, they say, well, I drive my kid to school in the morning and then I help them with their homework. Uh, I cook them supper. Those are only words that can go with the verb to be, or to do, sorry. And so leaders don't have this balance. They have a to-do list, but they don't have a to-be list. And the thing that's most important to leadership groups is what their leader is, not what their leader does. Hmm. Well, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier that connects to what you've just said is that, you know, uh, so many of these, I'll call them leaders, especially of publicly traded companies, I don't want to excuse any behavior, but in a way, they're they're somewhat forced to think short term. Are they not? I mean, there's quarterly reporting they have to do. Um, gee, and and then if we didn't teach them other ways of thinking long term, they're kind of forced to to behave this way. Is that okay to? Is that uh, well? Give me feedback on my what I just said. Yeah, that's you're absolutely uh, correct. Which is uh, which is why we lay out on page. 123, the mm -hmm. total uh, return on investment of all companies that have been listed uh, over the last uh, 30 years. And, um, and we point out that the, the vast majority of them have, uh, have returned less than the money that was put into them. Wow. And, um, and so we're looking at a, this, again, this is an in independent piece of research that's, that we, we, we put in there, which says that that short-termism is just not economically successful because the casualty list of companies that list uh, that that that, uh, that float are uh, is enormous, and so when the vast majority of those companies are returning either negative or just the money that was invested in them over that period of time, I think we have to question whether that system is uh, is efficient long term. There's no doubt in the short term that you can make money in the stock market mm -hmm. for a very small proportion of companies. You can also make money in the longer term by the notion that there's inflation in the system and therefore stock prices will rise as long as interest rates remain low. But when we're talking about the return on that investment, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people want dividend return. They don't just want share price growth. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and so we have to question whether that approach, that short-termism, is effective. Not all stock markets, by the way, have three-month reporting lists. Mm -hmm. uh, London has a six-month time horizon. And some people say it should even be longer to, to yeah. allow more time for the management to think long-term. Well, content, continuing discussion on that short-termism, what's the average uh, tenure of a CEO? Uh, maybe across uh, the world or maybe the United States. Does that have uh, something to do with their return on investment and their short-term thinking? Isn't it only a few years long, Chris? 
Yeah, it, it is, and uh, and it has been declining, although it's stable at at, at present, assuming it's been sure four or five years, depending on the sector that you that you look at. I think the the issue uh, really here is not uh, about the uh, about the the individual as a CEO, because the the book makes the premise that we concentrate too much on the leader and mm-hmm. not enough on the ship. We're mm-hmm. interested in leadership. And um, and that's why our previous book was called Leadership Lab, and it and it, 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 it essentially laid out the principle that if we want proper leadership, we've got to concentrate less on the leader and more on the ship. And the model that we've got of our leader is that they will be infallible, they will be middle-aged, often white men, and they will be certain, they will be confident, and they will look pretty much like our Judeo-Christian model of who we expect to be leaders. So we've grown up with Jesus Christ and and Moses uh, as management models that are passed down to us, and therefore we end up with Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Mm. Fascinating. By the way, a lot of them are tall, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, we make that point. That, um, <laughs> yeah, height matters, right? And well, at least, at least from uh, what we seem to accept as leaders. But don't we hold some responsibility for this? Aren't we all, shouldn't we all be responsible for the leaders that we get and or deserve? Oh, totally. As a, as a six foot two male, um, well, I, I can tell you that height is correlated with uh, with uh, authority and loudness, with confidence. Uh, that's that's how that's how it appears to work. But it doesn't mean to say that 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 we need to accept that and we shouldn't mitigate it. So leaders, if, for instance, in our meetings where we have meetings with people, perhaps we should have a system where everybody speaks equally for the same amount of time. Maybe mm-hmm. we should have a system where the leader always speaks last. Maybe mm-hmm. we have a system where uh, people are allowed to think through a problem in silence rather than giving in to the loudest voice. Mm. If we're aware of these things, we can do a lot to mitigate them and to recognize that that when we're talking about building leadership skill, competence always follows preference. People get good at what they like doing. But if they don't like the team that they're working in, nothing on God's green earth is going to make them good at what they do. Hmm. Uh, direct question. You talk about it in the book. So explain to me what you mean by zero models. And we've been talking around this a little bit, to use that phrase. Uh, explain what you mean by a zero model. What is that? Well, it's a really complicated model to make to make you think that we're deep, deeply intellectual. Okay. Good. Oh, you've convinced me so far, so let's yeah, keep it no. going. We, we just discovered our guilty secret. Um, we, we try to keep these models as simple as possible because there's an awful lot of people that want to introduce a lot of syllables into management thinking, and it doesn't need that many syllables. The zero model is basically to say, look, if we if we take a Cartesian model where we say uh, one scale you've got a quantitative and qualitative, we can really rank uh, uh, the center of that line as zero to say that if we if we think we're being overly quantitative in our analysis, then maybe we want to add some qualitative factors in there to balance it back at zero, zero being the origin of the Cartesian coordinates. And on top of that, we can introduce other axes, such as short-term and long-term, emotional and uh, rational. We could Mm -hmm. put male and female in there. And the center point of all of those lines would be zero. And what we're saying is that leadership, even if it's, masculine middle age it still can 
have a create a culture which is mm-hmm. which is balanced and at the, at the zero point. And so, if it's at that balancing point, the leader then uh, has got the fastest route to any one of those extremities. Now, leaders have to be able to de- demonstrate they can be extremely quantitative. They can be extremely analytical. They can be extremely Western reductionist. Leaders have to do all of that stuff, and they have to get there really quick. But they also need to demonstrate that they can have an extreme empathy, extreme qualitative skills, and extreme global vision. And so, and that's what we mean about having the balance of those things at the zero model. Because mm. you, you need to go from, you, you'll potentially need to go from one extreme to the other, maybe in five minutes. Correct. And the, <laughs> fastest, and the fastest way to get to those extremes is from the center, the zero. Starting there. Yeah. Um, excellent. So on page 81, here's what you say. The central proposition of this book is not that the rational uh, rational is our enemy, not that the rational is our enemy. It is, as Einstein put it, that the rational mind is a faithful servant, but the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. Expand on that. Well, Einstein was kind of a clever geezer. Uh, he was. He's a cl- clever man. And, he uh, was. <laughs> And, and what he demonstrated, he, that his, his boss fired him. He was a patent clerk, and he, and he, he worked in Belgium uh, in, a, in a place called Ostend. And he used to go off these long walks up and down the seafront. And his boss looked at him and said, this guy's going nowhere. He's not going to get to the top of the patent tree anytime soon. And that's because he was working out in his mind, thinking through some of the problems that he was most trying to solve. And he recognized, and he has a, a wonderful uh, uh, saying, and it's this, that creativity is the residue of time wasted. Hmm. And we fill our lives with all of these to-do lists, cramming in every last action into every last minute that we've got. And we ignore the fact that sometimes uh, our best ideas come when we're doing nothing. Hmm. And, 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 and this, I mean, if you say to somebody, you know, how was your weekend? And they say, "Well, I did nothing." You're going to think, "Well, what a loser!" Um, <laughs> you know, no, I, I went, I, you know, I went surfing, I went to the movies, I had dinner. You know, it's, it's like I did all of those things, and you must, you must be a terrific loser. But, but one of the things about about extreme intellect and ability to be able to perceive problems and look through problems is that they actually have to be able to do the exact opposite of that as well, which is to have a situation where they're actually genuinely switched off. If you talk mm-hmm. to a high-level Olympic athlete, they also talk about the importance of extreme rest, mm-hmm. where, where, where they have a time where they're completely switched off because that's the only way they can get to the extremities of performance on either way. Extreme rest also gives them extreme ability to perform. Hmm. So you're demonstrating some sense of humor. And, and, and actually, when you talk about, in the book, you talk about zero thinking, you mention that... Um, Humor is kind of important. So, so talk to me about that. Well, it's something that, that is never assessed in a business school or in leadership schools or anything like that. They don't assess it in, in any of the educational system. But I think paradoxically, it's something that we should take very seriously. Uh, and for this reason, that when somebody is able to put people at their ease, it demonstrates their terms of reference. It demonstrates their timing. It demonstrates their judgment, demonstrates that they're relaxed, that they might be fun to work with, that they can create an easy atmosphere around them. It actually tells you an awful lot 
about the culture that the leader is permitting. Mm-hmm. And if you want people to be relaxed and you want people to be happy in the team, then they've got to have a leader that permits them to come up with an idea. And mm-hmm. so many people, and this is particularly true of people that lack confidence, might be sitting on a great idea and they don't bring it forward because they're afraid that the leader won't receive it well. And mm-hmm. and every parent knows this, that if you really want children to develop, you have to in- encourage them. I'm not suggesting leaders need to treat their teams like children, but they have to create environments where they permit the behavior. They p- permit people to be able to try things and permit people to make mistakes because all success is built on a mountain of failure. I mean, let's mm-hmm. be clear about this, that mm-hmm. it's our attitude towards failure which dictates success, not our attitude towards success. Okay, so my guest is Chris Lewis. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with you, Chris? We mentioned uh, Twitter. So uh, what's where's, what's the best place to reach you on Twitter? Oh, it can be through uh, at Team Lewis uh, or uh, through uh, Chris.Lewis at TeamLewis.com. Um, okay. And, um, you know, I've even known to read letters. Uh, we should also mention that uh, what's the uh, reach, uh, get your, what's the name of your company? Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Um, we, we, um, uh, teamlewis.com, right? Teamlewis.com? Yeah, teamlewis.com will, will find. Yeah, teamlewis.com. Uh, go there, folks. Uh, you'll be amazed at what's being done there. Um, and you'll, you'll start to see again why Chris is, uh, he's leading a company and, uh, I feel he's even more qualified to talk about leadership. Okay. I'm going to get real serious now, Chris. So, um, no humor in what I'm going to say next. So, page 117. According to a report commissioned by American Express, while the number of female-owned businesses grew by 58% from 2007 to 2018, the number of firms in the U.S. owned by black women by black women grew by 164%. There were 2.4 million African-American women-owned businesses in 2008, and most were owned by women aged 35 to 54. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas, black women are the only racial or ethnic group with more business ownership than their male peers. Next sentence says, most investors such as venture capital and private equity firms are looking, but sadly do need, do not seem to find her. Would you expand on that, please? Yeah, it's because we're very prescriptive in what we define as entrepreneurship. And when I first started, my goal in the first three years was to survive, which is to actually just make enough to, to pay my rent and, and my food. Mm-hmm. And, and in the category that you've talked about there, there are a lot of people that can't find the flexibility from from employers. And so they take responsibility. And taking responsibility is the first rung on the leadership ladder. Mm. So they take responsibility for their families by saying, okay, well, I can't find the flexibility to do this myself. I'm going to create my own shop. And that might be just on their own to start with, but they make it work. And once you made made it work for the first three years, then you can concentrate on the next rung on the ladder, which is to start employing other people. 
And often we don't look at those people who are actually just trying to make ends meet as being a, a, the provenance of great leadership. But you learn more, I think any entrepreneur will tell you this, you learn more about leadership in the first three years of being on your own than you probably do for the rest of your entire career. The, 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 mm. the learning curve is vertical at that point. And that's why so many fail. I think the majority of business startups fail within the first three years. But some of these groups that we're talking about, they, they can't afford to fail. And so they actually make it work. And if you can make it work for three years, then you're through the, through the, the biggest constraint of, of entrepreneurship. And we need to recognize that group, which is that you know, if you, a lot of people sneer at, at self-employed uh, people. But if you sneer at the bottom rung of a ladder, you sneer at all the rungs on the ladder. Hmm. The jobs are being created in the small businesses, though that's worldwide, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, it is. And you know, one of the the issues for a lot of entrepreneurs is that they don't always have the time to be able to listen to to podcasts like this. That you know, they're they're too busy in the trenches. You know, they're really fighting from day to day, and they're overwhelmed with the learning curve and the tasks that they've got to do. So they don't have a chance to talk about some of the highfalutin ideas we've got on this uh, on on this call. And that's one of the reasons why we need to understand the the, the challenges that they face and really make it a lot easier for them because it's brutal at the first three three four years everybody knows it's brutal and that's why when entrepreneurs look at each other talk to each other that's why they're so unusually bonded because so they can show the scars they can share the scars yeah i've been there done that um so um yeah but we don't why well the direct question so let's assume those same folks uh, reach a certain level of success. Um, are these venture capitalists looking for people who look like them? Why are they not getting, why are these entrepreneurs that certain entrepreneurs are not being looked at or evaluated, I'll say fairly? What's, what's happening there? Well, because sometimes the, the, the venture communities themselves aren't that diverse. They tend to come from a similar background. Some mm. uh, investment companies even are very proud of the fact that they only take uh, people in every year from Harvard or Yale or Ivy League or any, mm. anybody who's very much along the lines of the Western reductionist model. Um, and, uh, and so if we don't have that level of diversity – you know that, that that leads to profound fragility and weakness mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. we have, have asked this question that in the financial crisis were we short of data were we short of experience in the leadership of those banks were we short of money were we short of resources were we short of computing power um were we short of research analysts and and yet they still didn't see it coming and so could it be that they were short of imagination uh, short of empathy uh, they weren't able to join the dots um and so this this is one of the the the, the issues about when people talk about e- equality and diversity as we do a great deal um mm-hmm. i want them to 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 realize that i'm probably not a communist and <laughs> so i don't <laughs> I don't see in any way, shape, or form that equality and diversity is anything other than a strengthener for business and a strengthener for the community. Because isn't this what the country was built on, a pluribus unum, out of the many 
from one. Yeah. Yeah, if you're only looking at folks who graduated from Harvard with advanced degrees on a, in a Ivy League schools, you're you're missing out. I mean, and and some of these entrepreneurs will do it in spite of lack of funding and the lack of investment capital. But we're doing a disservice, and and um, it's been proven, and the data is out there, data, data, however you want to say that, is that diversity pays, um, and it's a, it's a not only a doing good thing, it's a, it diversity pays. So my, that's my comment, by the way. That's not Chris. Um, here's here's another quote from the book that I love. Capital is no longer as important as connections. Okay, talk to me. So we, we're, and this is a broad geopolitical point as well, which is that we're moving from a, an age of resources where people sold commodities to each other, where those commodities were scarce. And we're now moving towards an age of values and where those values are becoming scarce. And if you look at this globally, perhaps the scarcest value commodity of all is now trust. Um, but without trust, you don't really have much of a market-based system because the market-based system really relies upon the fact that people say that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And they have an expectation that, for instance, if they invest in their education, that it's going to benefit them down the line. And increasingly, that's not true. And so when we're looking at the system of deferred gratification and investment, which is what the whole market economy is based upon, if we, if we don't have faith in the system, then the system won't work. And so, and this is one of the things that we're seeing probably in America, which if you believe that the system doesn't work, or if you believe the system does work, then you're probably right. Hmm. Interesting. Let's drive home the point, if it's okay with you, of uh, the team. Um, you make it throughout the entire book that uh, um, a leader is, is important. A leader should have all those qualities that you mentioned before. They should be bright. They should be uh, energetic. They should have all those uh, kinds of qualities, but empathy and the other kind of things are important. So let's, let's, make the point again that you continually make in the book of the importance in the team and the leader's relationship to that team. Is that an okay question? Sure. Yeah. So, so I think you have to ask the question, you know, what sort of people uh, make, make good leaders? So, you know, if you look at the orchestra model, does the conductor, is a conductor able to play the violin better than anybody else in the room? Uh, can they bang the drums better than anybody in the percussion section? Can they play the stringed instruments or the woodwind section better? And the answer to that is probably not. And so the, then the question comes, well, why are they out the front then? Could it be because they're the person that's most able to engage with all the different personalities in the room and the one that actually expresses and advocates their, their values? And perhaps could it be that they're the most flexible in the room to be able to accommodate those different viewpoints and weld them into an overall vision. Uh, leadership isn't necessarily about being the smartest person in the mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. The leader's job is to make everyone else feel like they're the smartest person in the room. Mm, very important. Yeah, very, very, very important. Um, I want to go back to education, zero education, and um, how our education systems are designed for 
for someone, an individual, to win a prize. And, and we've talked about this earlier in our discussion, but I, I, I want to I come back to this point. Um, it, it, let's review this kind of again, because I think this is critically important, Chris, in terms of why does an education prepare us for leadership? Apparently, it's not happening. We can read spreadsheets. We understand P&Ls. We understand balance sheets. But we're not, we're not learning about uh, humor or humility or integrity. Well, let's talk more about that. Give me, give me some additional thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I'm sure that, that your readers have got a certain amount of tolerance for boring British businessmen droning on about um, what's wrong with the education system. That's why I sent you that, uh, that graphic. And maybe right. that can be put up on your, on your website, or I can send it to people or put it up on my mm-hmm. timeline. And I think this comes from the fact that we, uh, our education system was really geared around a very small number of people initially. And those people mm-hmm. were highly academic and scientific. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that we often teach them qualities in terms of Western reductionism and drilling down mm-hmm. um, when people in leadership uh, positions need to be able to look across. And, mm-hmm. and that uh, parenthesis is probably the most important quality the leader has. They have to be able to do the detail, and lots of people can do the detail. Not many people can join the dots. And we're not really taught to do that at a very early stage about how we work with other people. For instance, you know, how if you're in school, you don't get any points for teaching other people, helping mm. the standard. You don't get any points for integrity, uh, for doing the right thing. And as, as we know, management is about doing things right, but leadership is about doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Those two things, are, they're, they're different. They sound similar phrases, but they're different. Leadership mm. has to do the right thing. And, uh, and teaching people to do the right thing, well, we don't teach, we don't teach divinity in business schools um, or universities or ethics. We don't teach any of those things. But some of the greatest ethical teachers like uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, they've got something to say about these things. And um, he's been writing about that for a, you know, for a thousand years. And so um, you know, it stood the test of time about you know, what leadership can be driven by and also what ethically should be at the heart of good long-term qualitative leadership. I mean, not many people can be successful. Not many people can be successful long-term. And not many people can be successful long term and come away without having their you know, brain shredded. Uh, it has to be sustainable, <clears throat> and that's one of the things that I think we see too much of, which is uh, too many people wanting to be in an environment to maximise the amount that they can make in the shortest possible time, and then leave that world rather than make it any form of sustainable. We seem to have a lot. We seem to be, ascribe a lot of importance to get rich quick. Yeah, uh, our, my producer, Dan, has heard me say this before, is that um, I'm so blessed that I'm older, <laughs> that I've aged, and I, and I see these principles have played out in my own life and in the clients that I've worked with over time. I may not have seen things as clearly at 35 as I do. I won't say how old I am, just older. Um, and, and I think these things play out well. Play out as you get older, as you read. I strongly recommend this book. The title is The Infinite Leader, Balancing the Demands of Modern Business Leadership. Balancing is an important word there. There's so many things we didn't cover in this book, including some 
religious kind of stuff, spirituality kind of stuff. Now, don't stop listening to us now, um, but it's a very engaging book. Very, very, I consider it new, new thinking. And uh, I've interviewed hundreds of people, so I consider this very unique. So to wrap up, Chris Lewis, our guest, um, what do you want us to remember? And about our discussion today, or, or and, and is there maybe any actions you want us to take immediately? So let's wrap up, but you, you giving us uh, some closing thoughts. Well, my summary really is, is to all of your listeners, have fun. This is not a dress rehearsal. You're supposed to be enjoying this. You don't come this way again. So have fun, because if you have fun, then you're likely to want to do more of it. And if you do more of it, you'll get good at it. And if you get good at it, you get paid more as well. And um, so what can be bad about that? Not a darn thing. So my guest has been Chris Lewis. His uh, website is teamlewis.com. Go there. You'll learn uh, more about what he's doing. The title of the book, again, is The Infinite Leader, Balancing the Demands of Modern Business Leadership. Chris, thanks so much for a fun and informative discussion on the Business Builders Show. Thank you, Marty. And thank you, Dan, as well, for your time. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's businessbuildersmedia.com.